Assalamu alaikum, everybody, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, we're delighted to speak to Dr. Joseph Kaminsky. Assalamu alaikum, Joseph. How are you? Walaikum salam. I'm doing great. It's an honor to be here. Great. Um, Dr. Joseph Kaminsky received his PhD in political science from Purdue University in 2014 and is currently an associate professor affiliated with both the political science and international relations departments at the International University of Sarajevo in Bosnia and Herzegovina. He is also a research associate and symposium coordinator at the Omatics Institute. His current research interests include religion and politics, comparative political theory, and new approaches to Islamic public reason. He is also the author of The Contemporary Islamic Governed State, a reconceptualization published in 2017 by Palgrave, and Islam, Liberalism, and Ontology, a critical reevaluation published by Routledge in 2021. A more complete list of his scholarly outputs can be, can be accessed at the link in the description box below. Today, Joseph is going to take us through a presentation summarizing the key themes of his book, Islam, Liberalism, and Ontology, a Critical Reevaluation. Joseph, the, the floor is all yours. Thank you, Brother Bassam, and thank you all for uh, coming here to watch this today's presentation. I, uh, inshallah, everything goes well with the technology. And um, <clears throat> uh, so without further ado, because there's quite a bit to cover here, uh, I'd like to first start off by just briefly mentioning what inspired the, the, the purpose of writing this book. And the reason I wrote this book is because I feel like there's just too many problems, both from what you consider perhaps the left and the right, when it comes to understanding the relationship between Islam and Muslim. And I this book is aimed at both a popular audience and an academic audience. And I know every academic says that, and then in, in the end, it turns out to really be for an academic audience. So once you start looking at the technicalities of the words and language being used, and I know this book probably ultimately veers more in that direction in the end, but I still think that anybody with a reasonable level of English knowledge and uh, an interest in both Islam, liberalism, and politics can probably pick this book up and gain something out of it. And the good news is, is this book is one of the rare books that is available in paperback version as well. So you can get this for 35 bucks rather than having to pay the hundred and whatever it costs for the hardback version. So, and of course there's other websites you can probably find the book on as well, if you know what I mean, right? So like, uh, <laughs> I don't wanna give away anything to anger my publisher, but you all know about how that works. So like I said, I'm not here to make money on the book. The whole point of the book is to actually have some people to read it. So. Um, basically, let's see if I got these text. Oh, good. So what is going on in this book? Well, I'll just make it very clear. The main argument pushed forth throughout this manuscript is that liberalism, enlightenment or political, which we'll talk a little bit more about those two differences, in Islam operate on fundamentally different baseline assumptions about the nature of reality itself. The stark differences regarding the overarching ontology of both discourses make reconciling them very problematic, okay? So one of the key points is general lower order similarities between Islam and liberalism should be seen primarily as incidental to rather than indicative of any deeper discursive congruence between the two discourses. This work also seeks to open the door to more serious scholarly inquiry 
regarding an alternative discursive framework, namely that which falls under the broader umbrella of what is known as communitarianism, not communism, communitarianism, which we'll talk more about as well, to help modern policymakers and theorists frame future social and political debates that will ultimately transpire in Muslim-majority countries, especially those transitioning out of autocracy and or civil war. So arguing that Islam and liberalism are not reconcilable at a higher order level is not necessarily a contentious claim to make. This work is not trying to sell itself as offering a controversial and radically new argument on this matter. Other scholars, believe it or not, have made this basic point, even though more recently we have seen a move by scholars to try to square the circle and find compatibility and genuine discursive compatibility between the two. One such scholar, the provocative Bernard Lewis, you know, not exactly Islam's biggest fan, but he frankly and reasonably makes the argument. The question here is, quote, not whether a liberal democracy is compatible with Islamic fundamentalism. Clearly it is not. But whether it's compatible with Islam at all, right? And so we talked about not fundamentalist discourses, but just the general mainstream discourse of Islam. And he further notes that... Um, that liberal democracy, right, however far it may have traveled, however much it may have transformed, in its origins is a product of the West. What differentiates my work from others that have alluded to Lewis's general point is that mine offers, at least aims to offer a rigorous critical analysis and a deep investigation of the basic categories and constructs that comprise both Islam and liberalisms as discourses more broadly construed via a clearly defined methodological mode of inquiry. Right? So rather than just making this point that Islam and liberalism are not compatible via a spattering of references and anecdotes, this book seeks to articulate in a meticulous and measured manner via primary and canonical sources that comprise each discourse. It ultimately hopes to serve as a useful asset for those studying comparative political theory or those interested in a relationship between politics and religion more generally. Because I think a lot of the things I say about this Islam and liberalism might apply to other religious discourses to certain extents as well. So this could be something read at a more general level than just per se Islam, but it's focused on Islam, obviously. So in a world of competing discourses for hegemony, at least in terms of being seen as the appropriate mode of political inquiry by policymakers, political actors and academics alike, liberalism and anti-foundationalism or post-foundationalism to varying degrees have all but won out in recent times. The great political scientist Fred Dalmeyer, who I had the honor of meeting a couple of years ago at Notre Dame, postulates that political liberalism has achieved a virtual canonical status, edging out nearly all competing ideologies and perspectives. Similar to Dalmeyer, Lucas Swain more recently argues that many liberals have grown complacent with their philosophical frameworks, even when confronted with serious challenges from alternative approaches, which results in their being less likely to scrutinize or be receptive to improving the values and institutions they themselves affirm. Right? Therefore, the canonization of political liberalism has far greater reaching implications than merely facilitating the preservation of the most obvious manifestations of things like imperialism and global domination. Um, Dalmeyer further comments here, and I think this is an important quote here that I have on the screen. That's why I'm sharing it. At this point, instead of... What's the easiest choice you can make? 
window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com try. Go to shopify.com try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Serving as Elan, liberalism's original critique or mode of questioning is in danger of turning into a fixed answer or an unquestioning dogma itself. To put it another way, Liberty is changing from a liberating premise into a vested status or a privileged position. End quote. Very powerful statement there by Fred. Fred and uh, Dalmeyer and Lucas Swain both seem to be suggesting that liberalism has become its own exclusive club. An entrenched ideology taken as a fully realized and perfected axiom rather than merely another option or possibility for social organization. It has become exactly what it was critical of in the first place which is another iteration of unreflective deference to tradition, albeit a new one that has replaced earlier traditions, right? So it, liberalism in many ways has become exactly what it was critical of in the first place. Previously, I argued that- well, uh, So basically, uh, it, you know, liberals try to try to portray liberalism as being inclusive, but in reality, they're just as, as exclusivist as any other, you know, religious adherent. <laughs> yes, exactly. And not only that, but Liberalism has become the new norm, right? So it's replaced what was before. It has become the new paradigmatic doctrine that is just the accepted, there is no real other way around this. And I should point out here before I go further, that when we're talking about liberalism here, we're not talking about left-wing, right-wing, Democrat, Republican politics. I think that's very important to get out for the, the, the uh, those who are viewing this who might not be as familiar with the terms. We're talking about the classical European and post-enlightenment development on liberalism. And the liberalism in this sense actually is in many ways more akin to what we would consider to be moderate Republican conservatism today, not necessarily the Trumpism, alt-right stuff, but the like the mainstream understanding, which, which ultimately is about expanding autonomous spheres of individual liberty. That's really what liberalism is about when you break it down, but I don't want to give away the punchline here. So previously I argued that a few doctrinal changes or the abrogation of a few ayat of the Quran that are unsavory to the liberal palate are not enough to make a society grounded in Islamic values compatible with liberal democracy, right? So just by like, you know, getting rid of the controversial couple, you know, things in the uh, Sharia that are unappealing to liberals, you're not going to transform Islam into something that becomes 
now compatible with liberalism. That's a major point I want to make. Right? So it's not just a few stylistic changes to a few certain specific religious practices and beliefs. Rather, this is only the tip of the iceberg, I argue, with considering the really deep incompatible incompatibility between Islam and liberalism. So the, the rest of the work digs deeper into this iceberg by looking at the ideas essential to those thinkers of the Western liberal tradition, beginning with earlier thinkers like Hobbes, Locke, and Mill, and then addressing modern interpretation of liberalism offered by a more contemporary scholar with a real focus and emphasis on the work of John Rawls. Okay? So any good research work needs to be sort of grounded in a, a methodology, right? And anybody who's doing their PhD should understand that even in political theory and political philosophy, we have methodology as well, right? So people often have this weird idea that methodology is something that is a, a quantitative thing, but no, indeed, political theory has to ground itself in some kind of coherent method. Otherwise, it's just rhetoric. So this book aims to be a work of comparative political theory. It does, in fact, draw quite heavily from Andrew March's earlier claims regarding what comparative political theory is actually found. According to March, the heart of his, at the heart of the. Can you tell the listeners in, uh, who Andrew March is? Andrew March is one of the leading scholars, probably one of the most prolific scholars in the world at this point when it comes to really looking at political theory, focusing on Islam and liberalism, right? And he's written a couple of very important works. And, uh, you know, he, he's a terrific scholar. There's no denying that. And he's, 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 you know, anyone who understands you know, the level of output he has had in his career, it, it is quite astonishing, right? And um, he's currently a full professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And he really is, about a decade ago, really helped redefine what comparative political theory was. So there are earlier arguments, specifically by people like Fred Delmeyer, about what comparative political theory should be. And Andrew really took it to a different level. And he sort of is perhaps, I would say, the major contemporary figure of comparative political theories, defining what the discourse is. Right? So he has articles in the American Political Science Review and other top journals really articulating what is comparative. He actually has an article called What is Comparative Political Theory? So, I mean, it doesn't get much more clear than that. So according to March, at the heart of the comparative political theory enterprise, Sweden describes its principal value conflict. Exploring its normative implications, he argues, is an appropriate task of engaged political theory and can be made the centerpiece of a comparative political theory project. He writes this in 2009, and there's been a lot of developments in the last 15 years or so, or 12 or 13 years since he wrote this. He describes comparative political theory as a justificatory exercise in that it differs from traditional concerns of hermeneutics, discourse analysis, genealogy, or intellectual history to the extent that it is concerned with a particular form of normative argumentation or justification. For March, comparative political theory does not pretend to be disinterested or value neutral. Okay? It is openly concerned with justifying certain normative principles in different philosophical, ethical, or religious foundations. Right? March's own method of conjecture, as he calls it, involves three fundamental premises that I try to follow in my work. And I think this, this is excellent advice for anybody who's doing comparative political theory. This is a good way to do it. One, perhaps most importantly, arguing from the more orthodox sources first and then moving to the less orthodox ones. So he's not saying to ignore reformist or less orthodox positions altogether. He's saying if you're going to root your argument in something, if you're going to talk about what Islam is, it's better to begin with people like Ibn Taymiyyah than it is to talk about some modernist reformist, right? Not saying that you should just throw that out, 
but you should start at the roots and then work your way outward, right? And this is really good, I think, for doing any kind of political theorizing, right? Uh, two, engaging in transparency and restraint when making arguments or claims, which means we don't want to be Leo Strauss, right? We don't want to take certain arguments or claims and then sort of really go in our own direction with them, right? We want to read the, we want to really read the authors as best we think that they're trying to articulate themselves, right? So, so, to, so basically, try to avoid a postmodernist deconstructivist uh, yeah you want to avoid that or you want to avoid applying you know your own contemporary hermeneutic to reading somebody 500 years ago who was operating in a different framework you want to you know avoid misrepresenting their argument you want to try to really present the authors as they themselves would like to be presented yeah so exegesis exegesis not eisegesis yes exactly and this is not an exact science of course you know nobody can perfectly represent somebody else's thought but we should do the best we can and finally, showing sympathy for the text in question being analyzed. This is very important as well. You don't want to go into reading the text already its enemy, right? So showing sympathy for the text is a way to prevent yourself from sort of offering uncharitable takes on what the author is saying. And this is something that is very hard to do because we're all sort of ideologically aligned and driven with certain positions. So what you want to do is you want to sort of take a step back into that more objective, quote-unquote, position and try to read the text in a way that's not going to have the author say, hey, that's not what I meant to say, right? That's the key here. So as Muslims would say, basically have personal fun or being, yes. giving the benefit of the doubt and being charitable in, in terms of how you interpret someone. Yes, that, that's a good way to put it, I think. Being charitable with them. And uh, you can do a lot more when you go that way, right? So I find a great deal of merit with this approach. To me, it makes no sense to base one's argument on liberalism or Islam on sources widely seen as overly reformist or overly reactionary for that matter, right? So we don't want to go with ISIS's interpretations of things either, uh, or outside the mainstream, right? So this means first engaging with the more conservative traditional positions. This does not mean, as I said, simply dismissing these unorthodox positions, but it means recognizing these positions ought to be the ones first used to articulate the more general ontological claims of a particular discourse. When discussing the theological and eschatological foundations of Judaism, for example, and I mentioned this in the book, where does one begin? Does one begin with referencing Moshe Rosen's Jews for Jesus movement that was founded in 1973 and posits Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah of the Jewish people? Or do they begin with Maimonides, right? Where do we begin, right? So this doesn't to say that there isn't something to be said for an extreme argument like Rosen's Jews for Jesus movement that just about no serious Jew takes seriously. But nonetheless, uh, that's not where you want to begin your argument about what Judaism and the foundations of Judaism is about, right? So that's sort of the... What, what, yeah, Joseph, what, what, would you say that the first point specifically has religion in mind, or does it also apply to secular ideologies like liberalism itself? Like, are there orthodox interpretations and sources for understanding liberalism? Yes, I, I would yeah. say there are. And I think that those orthodox ones are the sources I try to engage with, right? When we look at contemporary liberalism, we look at John Locke. You have to look at John Locke as one of the major figures. You have to look at John Rawls. You have to look at the people who developed from the Rawlsian tradition, right? So this is absolutely essential, I think, if we're going to have any serious engagement with the discourse, because whether we like it or not, these are the people who set the foundations of how things have progressed. So, yes, there are less orthodox interpretations of non-religious discourses. You know, same thing with communism as well, right? There's orthodox Marxism, and then there's critical Marxism, right? So I could go into all kinds of details about 
various ways to understand this. But if you want to understand Marxism, you start off with Karl Marx, right? You don't go into like Adorno or Max Horkheimer or, or uh, you know, Moshe Postone or something, right? So that's sort of, I think Marx's argument really applies to all political theoretical traditions, right? Okay, so that's just uh, the technical layout. The table of contents here, I, I think it's important to show you guys what, where I'm going to go before I uh, finish with uh, the rest of this. So you've all got a basic outline for the talk here. You can see I briefly will discuss the main points of each chapter, right? So we basically just covered chapter one in this like last couple slides. This work will give a brief outline of the historical development of liberalism and its enlightened origins. We'll then look more closely at the inextricability of enlightenment liberalism from political liberalism. This is the central connection to make in order to fully codify one of the main arguments being pushed in this work, that namely, no matter how one frames liberalism, once again, remember, we're talking about philosophical liberalism, not this American you know, liberal versus Democrat, Republican kind of thing. It is inescapable from a larger comprehensive doctrine. All right, we'll talk about that in a minute. If this is the case, as I intend to show, that no matter what level one seeks to postulate liberalism at, it remains intimately connected to a unique comprehensive doctrine that differs markedly from Islam. I will then address the question of how can one speak of Islam as a unified subject of inquiry despite a multiplicity of local traditions. And I draw heavily from the work of Talal Asad and Obamur Andrew and what is known as prototype theory here. The concluding chapters will be, begin the more explicit comparative analysis, looking at how Islam and liberalism as discourses, more broadly construed, differ on questions related to human rights, moral epistemologies, and the role of religion in the public sphere. Along with, uh, I even talk a little bit about a general approach to legal discourse and how to understand law and where laws derive from. These differences will be rigorously explored by the most important sources that I found within both Islam and liberalism. Uh, the concluding section of the book will articulate why, why I think what are known as Unitarian modes of thought offer more promise in liberalism for meaningful engagement with Islam and contemporary social political modes of organization. But I will admit here that I do focus more on the, I guess you would say, Western works than I do the traditional Islamic works in this book. So I'm more interested in critiquing liberalism on its own terms I could have done this slightly differently, of course, and there's a thousand different ways anybody can write a book. But my area of expertise is more in Western political philosophy, so to speak, but I do have knowledge of Islamic philosophy as well. But I felt more comfortable really digging into people like Locke and uh, and Rawls. And so, like I said, yeah, really inter inter internal words for a book, right? So I, I, yeah. I get to 200,000 word monster here. So that's, that's yeah. what I have to do. I mean, inter internal critiques tend to be the strongest. Exactly. Yes. I mean, this uh, this, uh, this outline looks great. So let's get yeah. into it. Okay, let's get into it. Definitely. So, chapter two. This chapter sets some of the more necessary groundwork for the argumentation that transpires in the forthcoming chapters. Right. So this chapter, in many ways, um, sets the. It's an important chapter because it, it shows where I'm going. It argued that liberalism is deeply rooted in the Enlightenment ethos, right? A Western, not Islamic phenomenon. While earlier Enlightenment thinkers were not necessarily liberal, right? One does see a steady move towards liberalism during the 18th century and into the eras of the French and American revolutions. During this time, one sees the emergence of newly constructed concerns with universal human rights and national rights as we move further along the development of international legal scholarship. Secularism is a development that is connected to the rejection of the church's authority over worldly affairs, and the rise of modern scientific inquiry. I emphasize in the chapter that the secularization of society 
The internalization of secular beliefs, however, should not be understood as one and the same. Okay, a good deal of evidence shows that the vast majority of people today still hold strong beliefs in the paranormal and the supernatural. Right? Just because we see an increasingly secular public space, it doesn't mean people themselves have become any less religious than before. Right? So this discrepancy between societal norms and individual beliefs has caused tension and uneasiness amongst many people. Right? So there's a guy named Jason Josephson Storm, who's a really interesting scholar at Williams College, who, who really writes, he, he's an excellent, he's a really interesting character. He's sort of gothic-y looking guy. He's got like, dresses in all black, and he looks like something in a heavy metal band. Got earrings and whatnot. And he's, he's a cool guy. But he basically argues that there's been a real rise in, as, as a result of the collapse of traditional Christianity in many ways, there's been a rise in paganism and in... Um, Wicca and other New Age religions that basically people are flocking to in, in pretty large numbers. And it, it might not be as publicly overt as you don't see it as much on TV per se, but his research indicated that people are not necessarily less spiritual. They've just moved on to different ways of expressing that spirituality, which is very interesting, right? So, you know, you know, as one of my scholars, one of my colleagues at, Rutgers, at Purdue used to say, you know, he's a hardcore Zionist, right? Very, very, very like, pro-Israel guy. But he made a good point. He was very, actually pretty fair on Islam. He had a lot of respect for the religion, despite his very strong Zionist Jewish leanings. He said that so long as man does not know what's going to happen to them after they die, there will always be a need for religion one way or the other. And he really meant that. People will always look towards something whether what religion it is, who knows, but people will not just complete, most people will not just give up. And I think that might account for why people are, who lost interest in Christianity, who don't know much about Islam or other alternatives, are looking for something, which is something to think about. So the process of secularization is not linear, and it certainly is not uniform. It is something nonetheless that liberalism is dependent upon, right? Liberalism really depends upon increasing secularism. Finally, centuries before nation states were ever created, Islam was not only a part of Europe, but it served as Europe's necessary others in the middle, in a, in a major way. Development of many social theories have argued was necessary for the formation of the group identity. While it might not be easy for the average European or American to say what being an American or European is, in many ways it's much easier to say what they're not. And what these people are not is they are not Muslim, right? So I argue, and this is not that, Joseph Massad made this argument as well, just sort of rehashing it a little bit. But it's important to understand that the European identity in many ways is forged on its opposition to Islam. Right? So what modern Europe is today cannot be understood completely divorced from that. Which is another important point I want to make here is that no tradition develops in a vacuum. Right? Yeah. All traditions develop, even Islamic tradition in many ways. Right? There's a lot of things from pre-Arab, pre-Islamic civilization and Arab culture that we still see sort of modified to be more halal, right? But nonetheless, it didn't start at zero, right? So that's something to keep in mind, that all civilizations draw and borrow from each other, and they all ultimately shape and reshape each other. Okay, so chapter three here um, is when things start getting intense, right? It's sought to give further credence to Charles Taylor's more general argument that liberalism despite its claims of being a neutral arbiter, ultimately is nonetheless yet another conception of the good. Right? This is the point we made, Basami made a, a few minutes ago. Right? 
Uh, another scholar named Daniel Weinstock nicely summarizes uh, Taylor's position, commenting that Taylor saw societies that project individual rights so that people can live lives according to their own rights, as or their own their own lights, their own way of going, as embodying at minimum a partially historically and culturally situated conception of the good, rather than somehow standing above such conceptions. Okay, most and, you know, in the, in, in the conception of the good entails commenting on what constitutes human flourishing. Yeah, what, what is what is ethical, what is unethical, how should you live, you know? And so this is pretty much aqidah in a way. It's theology, uh, if you think about it. That's how Muslims would, would, would look at it. So, um, you know, it, 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 I think that's an important point to understand. Yeah, liberalism itself is not somehow above and beyond these discussions. It's, these discussions are deeply rooted within it. And once again, my key argument is liberalism ultimately is about expanding the sphere of individual autonomy. That's what it's about. And there's no reason to assume that trend is going to change. We could talk more about the expansion of rights, LGBT, transgenderism, to what will come next. And there will be something that comes next, right? I wouldn't be surprised if the next terrain on this was something related to poly polygamous marriage, but not rooted in the reasons that Muslims argue. Why should a woman not be allowed to have 25 husbands? Who's to stop her? Why should her individual autonomy be dictated to that? And the next thing, too, and I don't want to go too off topic here, is who's to say that, uh, I don't want to say pedophilia, but let's just say that the age of 18 for legal relations in the United States is an arbitrary number, and that could also change, right? And we've also seen movements of people say that, hey, you know, consenting teenagers that want to be with adults you know that's the, the waters are being tested that's the point i'm making I'm not going to say that's going to be legalized anytime soon but we see a push towards this which also falls in this individual autonomous sphere right okay so most of liberalism contemporary critics have argued that liberalism is something that cannot be understood only in this limited political sense any iteration of liberalism is ultimately a transformative project all forms of liberalism possess an undeniably transformative character as i said seeks to maximize autonomous individual agency, which itself is an essential feature of Joseph Raz's understanding of perfectionist liberalism. But while political and comprehensive liberalism are most certainly not identical, they do share an undeniable familial relation. This chapter aimed to show the effort to fully divorce the two like Rawls tries to do is not feasible. If political liberalism, as Rawls suggests, generally is not at all contingent on any particular comprehensive doctrine, then perhaps there is more room for malleability between political liberalism and Islam. On the other hand, though, if political liberalism, even if it seeks to claim otherwise, remains rooted within the standard Enlightenment liberal conception of the good life, as this chapter tries to show, then finding a genuine overlapping consensus between the two, beyond a tenuous modus vivendi, at best, becomes even more challenging. While pragmatic compromises of this nature, which is what a modus vivendi is, is a pragmatic compromise, uh, have often been essential for the success of liberal toleration-oriented discourses and liberalism more generally. Nonetheless, such accounts fail to account for the moral appeal of genuine toleration, something that liberalism supposedly takes seriously, right? It's supposedly tolerant. That's the whole point of liberalism, supposedly, right? Toleration. Inherent within Rawls' iteration of political liberalism is a not-so-subtle recognition of what is and what is not acceptable in terms of certain comprehensive doctrines. 
this ultimately presupposes a certain late conception of the good, or at least a conception of the not good, which I do not believe can be properly understood or even articulated without some conception of the good, right? So you can't talk about what things are bad or wrong without having some idea of what things are right. See what I'm saying? Does that make sense? I think for the sake of our listeners, it would be good if we maybe spend a minute just uh, introducing who John Rawls was good, and good what question. were what were the, the, the most important um, ideas he, he, he proposed. Well, John Rawls is famous for his theory of justice, which was uh, published in the 1970s. And basically, he tries to find a way to create a just society. And he comes up with sort of a um, philosophical sort of thought experiment about how we can deliberate from conditions of not knowing our own existential rootedness as general generic human beings about what the best conditions for having a just society would be, right? So that, that getting into that would be a long discussion, would take you too far off topic. But as he moved into the 80s, he talked more about liberalism, political liberalism specifically. And Rawls is really the architect of, um, you know, how people understand liberal societies, right, in, in today's world. And, um, you know, when, when we talk about Rawls, we have to understand that he is a giant scholar of, you know, without a doubt, the most important political philosopher of the 20th century. And uh, if we're going to engage with discussions on liberalism in the contemporary context, we have to look at Rawls. Rawls really differentiates between political liberalism, which is this idea of an appeal to liberal politics without an appeal to the comprehensive doctrine or the idea of the good life. So he doesn't reject the idea of a good life, but he wants to leave it sort of untouched, right? It's something that's the, the political liberalism doesn't concern itself with. That's his argument. He's trying to be more inclusive. Yes. He thinks you can separate political liberalism from comprehensive liberalism. And I, along with a lot of other people, don't believe that's possible because I think that political liberalism is rooted in enlightenment liberalism, no matter how hard one tries to avoid that. And if, like I said, if I had more time, I could really dig into that, but I, I think I'm already going over here. So I like sure. So even if one tries to argue that uh, the declaration is merely condemnation of what is wrong rather than a positive affirmation of what is right on any particular comprehensive doctrine, Rawls has claimed that political liberalism is a neutral arbiter regarding competing conceptions of the good and metaphysical truth claims, in my opinion, remains dubious. Rawls's reasonableness corollary as a prerequisite for public discourse remains an unresolved and potentially problematic issue because it potentially excludes many religious lines of argumentation or religious rooted reasoning uh, a priori. Well, Sam Huntington may have made many objectionable posts in his clash of civilizations argument. One thing that does seem accurate in his depiction of, is the West's continued misguided belief in universality of its values and the political systems that it espouses, regardless of one's previous ideologies, beliefs, or local norms, right? Well, in the Trump era, the West seems to have moved on from supporting, moved on from this a little bit more towards supporting pliant authoritarian regimes rather than actually promoting democratization. Uh, you know, Biden seems to be a little bit more interested in paying lip service to this, though we're not seeing that in action. So it's sort of interesting to see how, um, you know, in the end, the West is starting to settle on, you know, let's, we can deal with CC, right? Uh, Shadi Hamid's book that just came out, which is really a good book you should read. I can't remember, it's about problem with democracy. Makes a really interesting point that uh, Obama 
in one of his discussions with some of his insights, because Shadi interviewed a bunch of people who were connected to the Obama administration. Obama actually said something to the extent of, if some of these dictators could be a little bit smarter, they, we could work with them, right? Mm -hmm. Which is basically saying, like, you know, if they were just not so darn oppressive, if they could just tone it down a little, we could sort of deal with it, right? This is very interesting. Barack Obama saying this, not Trump. This is Obama, right? So this is sort of understanding the nature of U.S. foreign policy, but without further ado. So that's what this chapter discusses. I go into real detail about these comparative liberalism. Right? Okay, so I feel like if I'm going to talk about liberalism, then I'm also obliged to discuss Islam's as well, right? Because the question of what is Islam has become an increasingly salient question in recent decades. And it's been addressed by a litany of scholars, right? A lot of people have talked about this. Can a conclusive, centralized account of Islam as a unified, singular, discursive meta-tradition be offered? I do not think it can, personally. A multiplicity of interpretations, sects, and dogmas have emerged over the centuries. But only the most rigid sectarian parties would deny still fall somewhere within the broader umbrella of that is Islam. As a matter of fact, a wide range of iconic scholars over the centuries including Imam Shafi'i, uh, Ibn Qutayba, Al-Ghazali, and Ibn Taymiyyah, all understood scholarly disagreement or ikhtilaf as a mercy and a blessing from Allah. So then a unified singular account of Islam is not feasible. Is this entire project incoherent? I don't think that's the case. I argue in this chapter that while a unified, conclusive, discursive account of Islam with the capital I may be difficult to provide, it is plausible to offer a coherent account of Islam, once again with the capital I, that will be palatable to most readers. This is what the previous chapter sought to do in this discussion of liberalism, right? Uh, this seems to be the case with any expansive ideology or belief system. While offering a conclusive account may not be possible, one may still be offered, able to offer what is considered coherent and plausible. Plausibility, however, does not speak for itself. It needs to be backed with argumentation. So to help bolster the plausibility of my claims, I engage with Ludwig Wittgenstein's notion of family resemblances and the idea of prototype theory, which first emerged in the field of cognitive science a few decades ago. With this in mind, the burden of proof is much lower for demonstrating a plausible and coherent ontology of Islam as possible, as opposed to a definitive one with the bar significantly higher, if not impossible to meet altogether. So how do I do this? Well, drawing from the likes of Talal Assad, I argue that one can understand Islam sort of like a giant web. You have primary sources and beliefs that are universally assented to by just about any Muslim. And then you have the canonical legal and scholarly sources, the major texts, the right, the Shafi'i's Risala, etc. Following the secondary level, you have tertiary commentaries and developments by later scholars of these aforementioned canonical discourse and works as well that are accompanied by certain practices. Right? While these commentaries and developments are extremely valuable, they nonetheless are less rudimentary to the overall discourse than the texts that they analyze which are more important. Then these tertiary commentaries have their own commentary sets of practices that come with them and so on and so forth. The web loosens the further down one goes. Nonetheless, though, just because some of these works are situated more on the periphery of the web, this does not mean that they're not a part of the overall web. The point here is that if you remove the threads from the web further down, you don't necessarily destroy the tradition. But those internal webs, right, those very close ones to the middle, if you tear those apart, the whole web collapses. These sort of resonates with prototype theories appeal to an ideal exemplar, or by possession of a sufficient number of typical features of a class, right? So this is the cognitive uh, science discussion I'm talking about, okay? So if enough of these cases are brought to bear, one has the essential 
one basically you know, have a general agreement amongst Muslims about certain texts and practices that are widely assented to be prototypical of Islam and a discursive tradition. If one can do this, they have the necessary ingredients to explain a discourse such as Islam as a more general meta-category that remains flexible, but nonetheless still has meaningful content and tangibility, right? When viewing things from this perspective, the real question becomes how big of a web does one want to create? In my opinion, this is the real unresolved problem related to the question of Islam as unified, coherent, discursive tradition. A web that is too small fails to capture certain things that are very important to tradition, while a web that is too big potentially waters it down to the point where it eventually becomes incoherent and just about anything is considered Islam, even if it really isn't, right? So this is important. There's certain things, and this is Ovenor Andrew's argument as well until al Assad, right? There's certain practices, there's certain texts, there's certain beliefs, there's certain aqidah that are just, if you take that out, you're not a Muslim. You're outside the fold of Islam, the end, right? But as you get further along, you could, there's room for disagreement. Which madhahib do you, which madhahib do you follow, right? Do you pray with your hands like this or like at your side, right? And these are questions that there isn't a single one answer and everything else is totally wrong to, right? But nonetheless, um, these are important things and that's, this is what makes the tradition rich and, and beautiful, right? And this is why we have ikhtilaf. If, 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 if there wasn't meant to be differences amongst practices, then they wouldn't be permitted, right? There would be no ikhtilaf. There would be, you do it like this, this, and this, it would be universal across the board. So this is how I think we can understand Islam as a coherent discursive tradition with a lot of different multiplicities of local traditions, and some of which, as we get further on the web, may be very questionable to certain people, right? There's certain practices of, say, the Shia, right, that are very, very, like, uh, an Orthodox Sunni or wrong. They're, they're, they're totally bid'ah or outright wrong, right? But nonetheless, if we want to be fair, we would still argue that, you know, there's, like I said, there's certain limits, there's certain basic beliefs. I don't want to get into all that right here. But we could, most sensible people would agree that these people are misguided, they're off, but nonetheless, they fall somewhere on the peripheries of what would be considered acceptable, right? And this is how it's. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, as you said, you know, like the, the tradition is rich. Yes. And uh, it, 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 it's receptive to flexibility, but there are also some clear identifiable boundaries that have to be yes. respected. And when we look at the statements of the Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, you know, he's also foretold that there will be some people who will come in, uh, to use your analogy, to expand the web beyond uh, what, what, what is deemed to be reasonable. I'm warned that there will be people that will be, uh, that there'll be ignorant people, there'll be people that will mislead others, there'll be people that will, you know, uh, basically stray away from, from the correct the teachings of Islam. So the Prophet did emphasize, you know, uh, sticking with the, with, with the victorious group. Um, uh, 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 sticking with the jama'ah. So these were also advices that the Prophet, peace be upon him, gave to the Muslims in order to, um, you know, anticipate and and uh, and uh, uh, you know avoid mm-hmm. you know, these the, the sorts of problems that, that that could arise. And I think most Muslims understood this. I think this is an Orientalist problem, to be honest. You had scholars. For centuries, trying to argue that you know Clifford Geertz are trying to argue that Islam gives a definitive blueprint for like every single aspect of one's life, like right. So you have Orientalist scholars who collapse these categories and try to create this caricature of a an incredibly rigid, intolerant, inflexible Islam, right? So this is basically you know Muslims, I think, as you said, understand this, right? Those of us who understand our tradition understand the rich diversity 
amongst it. In the uh, yes, of course, there are certain things that are clearly outside outside the fold of Islam, and there's other things that are, you know, most scholars would say, well, that's a that's a fair area for disagreement. So it's it's important for scholars and academics to continue debating this. How big of a web do we want to create? And that's a question that's never going to fully resolve itself. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's good that these discussions and debates happen because I think it keeps things alive. And uh, I think that's one of the blessings of the dean. That's why I converted to it 15 years ago because I saw this kind of dynamism within it. That's why I find it to be so beautiful, right? And, 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 I, and I think, you know, the, the, these Orientalists or whoever will choose to do that to Islam would not appreciate if one were to do that in turn to his belief system, right? So yeah, they, would not, they would not appreciate if we were to come around and say, you know, okay, you know what, I'm going to interpret liberalism this way, the way I please, by not referring to your orthodox sources. They wouldn't appreciate if others were to do that to them. Absolutely. Right? So, you know, yeah. Yeah, you, you're really getting it here. That's exactly what I'm trying to get at. And, um, you know, this is what I mean by sort of being able to see the long view of things and to avoid getting trapped in your own dogmas. And this is a problem, I, I think, with a lot of young Muslims is they're so against liberalism that they attack the most ridiculous caricatures of it that really don't represent it. Because let's be honest, a lot of the positions that are attacked as being liberal are actually not liberal. They're actually socialist or social democratic more so, right? So when we really want to break it down, some of the, some of the things that are going on go beyond liberalism itself that are being critiqued as liberal. But nonetheless, let's uh, move on here. We can talk more about that in a little bit. So chapter five is where I really engage with Islam and liberalism's moral epistemologies. It frames the argument around the thought of John Locke, which serves as the fulcrum for comparative analysis of this chapter. Questions that I explore in this chapter include things like, how do societies come to understand morality? And which sources are engaged in when crafting localized and uh, universal moralities? Right? How do we come up with this stuff? I would like to begin by pointing out that Locke was a notoriously difficult thinker to pin down on many key issues, especially those related to moral law and natural rights. Locke's moral theory, as outlined in his essay concerning, concerning human understanding, presents many formidable challenges, even for his most skilled readers. Catherine Wilson eloquently lays out some of these problems, noting that, quote, depending on where in the essay, the essay concerning human understanding, one looks, the content of morality appears to depend on the Bible, or on the requisite of our fellows, or on our personal needs and interest. Our knowledge of moral principles seems to in turn depend on a priori reflection, and social learning and religious instruction, and the analysis of terms and sentences. Locke's generous attempt to accommodate every moral intuition makes it really difficult to characterize his doctrine in standard terms, end quote. So that's a, a really, I like that quote from her because it really, I think, summarizes the difficulties of reading Locke. He's not really- Yeah, when I, when I was doing my master's thesis on, on deism, I was reading multiple sources on Locke and people were still confused. Was he a Christian or was he a deist? Yeah, so they couldn't I mean, really pinpoint his exact beliefs. There are people who generally believe Locke just totally paid lip service to Christianity and really didn't believe in anything at all. And there are people who believe he was deeply, deeply religious, more so than his writings even indicate. So, you know, but this is one of the interesting things about great thinkers is there's many ways to interpret and read them, right? So this is why Locke is a, a brilliant mind. We, we shouldn't downplay his contributions. He's a an incredibly nuanced thinker, right? And this is what makes him stand the test of time. This is why we read Locke still, and we'll probably read him 100 years from now as well. 
However, I do offer my own efforts to lay out what I consider to be, once again, going back to Andrew March's method, a plausible portrayal of Locke's basic moral epistemological positions. So I follow this method of doing comparative political theorizing to offer, and I'm, I'm not trying to say this is definitively the right interpretation. It's about plausibility. Is this a plausible portrayal or not? And I think that's the best we can do with political philosophy, right? Locke's position does not begin, in my opinion, with rights per se, but it does hinge upon the obligation of everyone to obey the law of nature because man represented the divine workmanship of God. Okay? This, of course, is a speculative argument that begs the question, where does God explicitly iterate these rights that Locke refers to? The answer is that God did not explicitly iterate these rights. He iterated certain laws to follow that can be derived from the Bible. But for Locke, it appears that no such explicit textual revealed source can be pointed to for rights. This is because natural rights derive from natural law, which itself exists within nature and is readily recognizable by man by his own rational faculties. It's also important to point out that for Locke, divine law and natural law are not at odds. How was Locke able to ensure this? The answer is rather straightforward. Locke simply interpreted natural law in a way that was consistent with biblical teachings. Right? At the same time, however, Locke also made biblical teachings fit within a liberal understanding of the world. According to B. Park, Locke allowed for the liberal worldview to re-articulate Christianity in what he calls, quote, standard liberal idioms, and he achieved this by turning Christianity into a reasonable doctrine, by stripping it of its theological mysteries, reducing its highly complex ethic to a simplified morality of bourgeois reciprocity, and by turning churches into voluntary associations. In essence, made, Locke made biblical scripture interpretations fit within his own iteration of natural law, which Parks understands as a simplified bourgeois uh, moral, uh, simplified morality of reciprocity, with a very heavy emphasis on property rights. Okay, this is Locke's big thing: property rights. This is what allowed Locke's theory to accommodate both divine law and natural law at the same time. Okay, now briefly summarizing the link between God, the law of nature, and how this law of nature comes to be understood by man in Locke's depiction. Of how we come to acquire ethical truth, here's Locke's position. God, who is himself constrained regarding certain moral truths, which exist independent of his will, according to Locke, creates the law of nature with the aforementioned restraints in mind. And man eventually comes to understand this law of nature via reason. Such laws are understood as antecedent and never via innate imprint, even though we all do possess certain hardwired instincts for other things such as base psychological drives and urges. Examples of these for Locke include the desire for food, water, the avoidance of pain, etc. He also believed we have a natural, he did believe we have a natural inclination to seek knowledge and that we all possess the capacity to learn. This understanding is quite different from most widely held positions within Islam on how individuals come to understand morality. Within Islam, the mainstream argument is that all knowledge is rooted in the fundamental notion of God's oneness, understood as Tawheed. Goodness does not exist outside God's divine will, and we do not believe God is constrained by anything independent whatsoever, whatever restrictions he may choose to place on himself, which, he, of course, he always has the ability to lift, right? Even those scholars today who cling to certain aspects of Muatazalite rationalism rarely, if ever, at least publicly, promote their school's earlier permission which explicitly held that God's will is constrained by external moral prerequisites. Well, some people do, actually. There are people today who sort of, I think Mustafa Akio is making this point a little bit. 
but most people don't want to go there, right? This position really lost its currency or about a thousand years ago. Ismail Farouki, right, the great late Palestinian scholar who was murdered by, um, I believe, Israeli Mossad agents killed him, right, in the 1980s. He argued the Tawhid rests on three core methodological principles, right? And I really recommend everyone read Farouki if you get a chance. He really is an important contemporary thinker who, who articulates these things in ways that the 21st century Muslim could understand. So the three core principles for Farouki is that the rejection of all that does not correspond with reality, second, the denial of ultimate contradictions, and third, the openness to new and or contrary evidence. We can see here for Farouki, Tau necessitated both rational empirical observations along with the recognition of God and unity. Two cannot be separated, right? The second part of the chapter here looks at the foundations of universal human rights as understood within the liberal and Islamic moral universes and show where the two discourses converge and depart, once again, with a heavy focus on law. Regarding the modern notion of rights, Alistair McIntyre comes to point out from a purely linguistic perspective that no proper translation from any medieval languages of what we would consider a modern right today really exists. He comments that the concept of this, uh, of modern, the modern notion of rights lacks any expression in Hebrew, Greek, Latin, or Arabic, classical, or medieval before about 1400, let alone in Old English, or Japanese as late as the 17th, the mid 19th century, I'm sorry. A similar assessment regarding the lack of concrete notion of human rights in antiquity was also expressed by none other than Benjamin Constant himself, who believed that the unique contributions of the French Revolution was its firm establishment of the idea of the universal, of the idea of universal human rights in the minds of men. Prior to the French Revolution, according to Constant, no such concept was really taken seriously by most people. Islam and liberalism, at one level, are both concerned about the individual. However, the way that these concerns are articulated differs radically. Right, the, the great um, Afghani scholar who's now in Malaysia, Mustafa Kamali, asserts that um, Islam's primary focus is on the individual, but in the sense that it inspires the believer with faith, instills him with the qualities of being trustworthy and righteousness. This is suggesting Islam is more deeply concerned with the individual soul and their spiritual well-being than it is with their worldly rights and freedoms in the, in the Western liberal sense. Abdulaziz Sachedina, who studied with Ali Shariati, as a matter of fact, it's an interesting lineage there. I got to meet him in Istanbul a couple of years ago. Really interesting guy, very interesting man. He reminds us that the language of Islamic juridical tradition is primarily the language of responsibilities and obligations rather than rights or liberties. Within the liberal discourse, the understanding of the individual is once deep in a somewhat expansive notion and the continually expanding notion of liberties and rights. Liberalism does not really concern itself with intrinsic qualities such as trustworthiness or righteousness as moral ends in themselves, right? Well, it's good to be trustworthy because it ensures contracts will be upheld, right? It's, it's about practicality rather than being moral in and of themselves. The emphasis on responsibilities and obligations as noted by Sachedina really markedly differs the Islamic juridical and constitutional tradition from the liberal one, which does prioritize rights and liberties in that oh, I was wondering if you could help me uh, understand um, what Sashadina had in mind here, because when, when, you, when you do talk about responsibilities, doesn't that by default entail that you're also speaking about rights? So, for example, a husband's responsibility is to be uh, the caretaker for his family. Wouldn't that entail that his family has a right to be taken, to be provided for by the husband? Or is he defining rights in a different way here? I think we're talking about rights in a different way. I think for liberalism, you have certain rights 
that don't necessarily come with any responsibilities. And I think within Islam, that's a good point you bring up that rights always seem to have a responsibility attached to them and vice versa, right? Hmm. So, so, I think so, so perhaps uh, the, the rights that he's uh, that he has in mind are unconditional? Uh, yeah, I think we're talking about unconditional. Islam, hmm. We can think of sort of negative liberty and positive liberty, the distinction between the Isaiah Berlin brings out, right? That you have sort of certain rights to that don't really come with any requisite responsibility attached to them, right? So I think Satchadina's point is that within Islam, that we can never really separate the two. There's always, with, with, with every right comes a responsibility, mm -hmm. right? And with every responsibility comes a right. In, in the way you're articulating, I think is pretty good. So I think that's what he's getting at there. I didn't really dig too deep into that, but I think that that's the, the, the main point we're, we're trying to find. Yeah, here. because I mean, our, our scholars do use the word which translates into rights mm -hmm. in English. Yeah. So, but that's fine. I was just, I was just curious to know what he was thinking. Okay, so comparing the, this is an important development here. Uh, the, the, actually, sort of what I'm, my next book project is focusing in on this idea of liberal and Islamic approaches to the role of religion in the public sphere. This chapter critically engages with a few uh, approaches representative of the mainstream within broader liberal public reason discourse. Specifically, I talk a lot about Rawls, Habermas, and Jonathan Kwong, right? So some scholars have argued that political liberalism thus far has only really sought to address liberal or fundamentalist religious actors, right? So either the really progressive actors or the really fundamentalist actors, and has paid insufficient attention to mainstream traditionalist religious actors, which make up a significant portion of believers across all religious discourses. Now, at this point, I think she's correct, right? By nature, we always seem to focus on the extremes, right? So we see somebody say something really outrageous, and that seems to be, like, highlighted more so than the thousands of people who don't say such things. The main claim being promoted in this chapter is that appeals to liberal public reason run into some problems when it comes to satisfying the needs of traditionalist Muslim actors who do seek to fully engage in public discursive sphere. While there, may be, while there has been a litany of scholarship on the liberal approach to public reason since Rawls's work first came out in the 1970s, the opposite is true regarding non-liberal approaches to public reason. Right? Um, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, Just I was wondering if you could briefly explain what public reason means. Public reason basically relates to the kind of argumentation that can be used in public political sphere to argue for policy and uh, other recommendations on how government governance should operate, right? So liberal public reason basically said you can't make, you can't say we should ban women from uh, doing this because the Bible says, right? Or yeah. I'm against abortion because it goes against my religious beliefs, yeah. right? So liberal public reason would say you need to find a secular reason for that, which has put us in a weird position today where people, you'll have people argue against abortion, even though we all know they're against abortion because of their religious views but they'll frame it as some kind of psychological issue for the woman's health. So getting an abortion is psychologically damaging to the woman who gets the abortion. So therefore we should ban abortion. This is an inauthentic form of argumentation, right? This is not the real reason why people are arguing, right? So Catholics are not against abortion because of the woman's psychological stress or the potential danger of the abortion procedure itself, right? So one in a million abortions causes the woman to bleed out and die, therefore we should ban it, right? Because let's be honest, abortion for the woman is generally a medically safe procedure. So that argument doesn't even make sense. But this is what liberal public reason sort of does. It forces you to shelve your 
non-public art, your private argument against it, right? And I argue that this isn't a good way to go about deliberation of public sphere. And it, in, in an Islamic society, we could never really do this, right? Because we will always make appeals to Islamic reasons for things, right? So this chapter really sought to engage with some of the limitations regarding what liberal public reason can offer those whose worldviews are really deeply rooted in an Islamic social-political mindset. It did not aim to show, once again, that liberal and Islamic conceptions of public reason are hopelessly in conflict at all times. Liberal public reason can potentially be within, operationalized within various domains, within the broader Islamic socio-political discursive space, within certain parameters, right? So, for example, University of Toronto law professor Muhammad Fadl has recently argued within the realm of non-ideal theory, specifically regarding how Islamic judges operationalize public reason when applying law, uh, Fadl holds that Rawls's idea of public reason can play an important role in guiding how public reason-minded judges should apply Islamic law with, when the rules of the legal system require them to do so. So I find this to be largely an accurate assessment. In certain cases, public reason-minded judges can find ways to creatively balance obligatory religious prerequisites with the basic standards of liberal public reason in a way that remains within the fold of Islamic legal thinking if done correctly. However, by Fadl's own account, public reason-minded judges are only one type of judge, and they are not necessarily the default or the only correct type of judge. It is questionable as to whether or not most Islamic judges in practice, since we're talking at the level of non-ideal theory still, operate within a Rawlsian public-minded framework when applying the law. Right? While public you, reason is it is it possible that what Dr. Fadl has in mind um, is discussing rulings that are you know, where, where, where scripture is silent about them. And so when it's kind of left up, you know. Yes, the, that's, I think. Cost, he, benefit, if it's left up to a cost-benefit analysis of Maslaha and Mafsada, therefore, okay, provide your rational argumentation uh, because, you know, at the end of the day, Islam, you know, Islamic jurisprudence does accept, um, you know, uh, whatever yes. is beneficial uh uh, you know, for whatever's in the public interest of, of the community. So do you think that's what he has in mind? Like he's restricting the scope of when public reason could be used as opposed to doing unrestrictedly? I think that's sort of what he's getting at here. Um, that, the, yes, sort of what you just said. And on those issues that are not clear cut, ruling, you know, with Rawls's sort of conditions in mind is possible. Um I, I think that that's probably where he's going, yes. And I think that there's something to be said about that, right? So while public reason obviously plays a role in shaping a public reason-minded judges, there undeniably will also be other doctrinal factors that will tint any Islamic judge's reasoning and decision-making process as well. And sometimes these reasons may run afoul of Rawlsian public reason, right? So one of the debates that's going on in the U.S. legal system right now is this idea of, you know, strict construction, right? Trying to interpret the Constitution as the founding fathers interpreted, right? But in reality, like, nobody really can actually say they know exactly how the founding fathers interpreted things because they've been dead for 240 years, right? So the argument that people like Dworkin make is that we all, one way or another, go into our own minds when it comes to running decision-making. All judges use, whether they want to admit it or not, moral reasoning in their argument. Right, like ishtihad, ishtihad in a way. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. way, yes. But it's 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 like you can't make a ruling. No judge. Dworkin's argument. No judge can really make a ruling without 
having some kind of moral position that shapes that ruling, that understanding, that interpretation of the world. So our moral sentiments will shape how we interpret and read the text subconsciously, whether we want to admit it or not, right? So if you're a hardcore gun, guns right Republican and that's something you've been drilled in your head, when you read that Second Amendment, you're going to read it in a certain way. Those words are going to appeal to you in a certain way due to your conditioning and your values than it would say somebody who's a hardcore anti-gun activist who reads that same text, right? right? So Dworkin's point is it's impossible to separate ourselves fully from our moral reasoning. So when judges, you know, strict strict interpretation and strict construction to say they're doing it, they're really just sort of, it's not really authentically being said, right? But sure, surely there are some guardrails that would prevent someone from interpreting yeah, it. Yeah, there's some guardrail to present, prevent judges from going completely and obviously overboard. But, you know, let's be honest. When conservative judges interpret Roe versus Wade one way, and surprise, surprise, they all happen to be personally anti-abortion, right? So wouldn't it, if, if you had a pro-abortion judge who read the text of the Roe versus Wade ruling and said, you know what? I'm pro-abortion, but I read this text as saying abortion, uh, this is written wrong, we should, like, nobody did that, right? The justices who are sort of pro-life found the pro-life reading to the ruling, right? So once again, to believe that that didn't shape how the text was read, it would be sort of naive. Yeah, it's, uh, and that's why each political party is trying to get its its favorites exactly right? onto the Supreme Court. Great point. Know. So I so in a so if it was truly you know the text spoke for itself, then it wouldn't matter who the judge would be because every judge would have the same ultimate ruling, right? But this is why there's such an intense fight between who gets to put who's on the Supreme Court because clearly these judges do have certain moral sentiments and values that shape how they read these texts and how they rule on these issues, right? So this is very important. Um, however, um, let's see. so th that's sort of where I go with the public reason stuff. Let's, let's move on here. Cause I think I'm, I've been going well over an hour already. I'm almost done. Don't worry, everybody. So this chapter, um, chapter seven sort of tries to compare the Islamic and liberal approaches to law. And I think this, this is an important chapter and this chapter gets slightly technical as well. Uh, but I think, you know, what I say here, I think, isn't too controversial, right? So this chapter explores the similarities and differences between Islamic and legal conceptions of law. It first offers a brief outline of how fatawa function within the substantive, within some substantive Islamic law, touching upon this controversial idea of the closing of the gates of ijtihad, popularized by later Orientalist writers. It then articulates how Western liberal legal discourses differ from Islamic legal discourses, both in terms of purpose and scope. Finally, this chapter explores similarities and differences between the American legal system and classical Islamic legal thought regarding the moral prerequisites for the admissibility of witness testimony in a court of law. Okay. So that's just sort of a case study I give to, to emphasize my point. The overarching argument this chapter aims to promote that the liberal conceptualizations of law at one level are freer than Islamic law. This is because of the greater flexibility that liberal, liberal legal conceptions have regarding their commitment to their own foundational sources sources rooted in human reason and not revelation. However, at the same time, I contend that liberal legal theory is far more limited in scope and is less concerned with directly engaging with political and or moral questions in Islamic law, or that it at least seeks to address such questions in a different way via different means. This point about Islam's wider scope concerns were the basic arg argument of N.J. Coulson, 
who was an Islamic legal scholar of the mid 20th century, who argued that Sharia has in fact a much wider scope and purpose than a simple legal system in the Western sense of the terms. According to Coulson, jurisprudence, which he, or fifth, not only regulates in meticulous detail the ritual practices of the faith in matters which could be classified even as medical hygiene, social etiquette, legal treaties indeed invariably deal with these topics first, but it is also a composite science of law and morality, law and morality whose exponents are the guardians of the Islamic consciousness. Right? Many of the questions liberal law seeks to push back to other political actors and government bodies, Islamic law, at least in principle, seeks to directly confront via its Sharia-rooted discursive legal framework. Chapter concludes that when properly actualized, an Islamic legal discourse would never completely absolve itself in question, considering questions of goodness or soundness when offering a legal decision. When taking this matter seriously, it means that Islamic law has certain restrictions that are not present within Islamic within, within liberal positive law from the very start. This is even the case in Islamic courts. Justice is an explicitly divinely ordained requirement in an Islamic court. The context-specific iterations of liberal positive law have their own foundational sources, such as secular constitutions or man-made human man-made bills of rights. These foundations are inherently malleable and subject to change. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, at the beginning of the 20th century, commented in a very important court case that the common law is not a brooding omnipresence in the sky. Rather, it is the articulate voice of some sovereign or quasi-sovereign that can be identified. It seems clear in Holmes's assessment that there's no room for God when articulating or even thinking about modern common law. In his words, common law always laws some state, which means that law is exclusively made by man for man. The Islamic legal approach simply is no longer Islamic. It becomes little more than a historical artifact. This foundational sources are no longer taken seriously. Or to put it more bluntly, borrowing from Holmes' own words, Islamic law can never be fully and properly conceptualized without recognizing a brooding omnipresence in the sky. Right? And this is a major difference, right? And the, 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 uh, if you read the chapter, it, it gets more technical, but that's sort of the outline of what I'm doing here. So what you can see here is I, in these, 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 the fifth, sixth, and seventh chapter, I really show point by point where Islam and liberalism differ on these very fundamental issues. I could have picked other things to engage with and focus in on, but I thought these were the most important things to look at, and that's why I chose to focus on them, okay? So while I hope the reader after the first seven chapters feel that what they've read thus far provided some valuable insights, I feel more benefit can be derived from this work and perhaps a future book, though I'm not ready to work on this one yet, <laughs> by looking at a mode of discourse that does appear to offer more possibilities from which within the conceptualized Islam and politics within, right? If one has to offer what amounts to a critique of something, and I feel that they're obliged to at least try to offer something positive in this place. So anybody can compl complain and say Islam and liberals are not compatible, blah, blah, blah. Well, what then are, what is more compatible? Therefore, this concluding body chapter introduces the possibility of what is widely understood as communitarianism, as a more suitable alternative discourse for rethinking novel, novel forms of Islamic social and political organization in the 21st century. The chapter first offers a working definition of community, followed by a working definition of communitarianism. It then went, went on to lay out the main communitary critiques of Rawls's original position, as well as the communitarian Islamic contentions. The secular liberal individualism ultimately is a self-defeating enterprise. The final part of the chapter looked in greater detail at what virtue ethics can potentially offer for novel conceptualization of Islamic modes of social and political organization. 
The ultimate aim of the chapter was to show that communitarian discourses offer more possibilities for meaningful engaging with Islam than does comprehensive or political liberalism. All, it seeks to open the door to further scholarly engagement between Islamic and communitarian discourses. A successful Islamic polity is dependent upon some shared notion of Islamic moral agency that is rooted in Quranic values. In the end, moral agency is developed as a communal value in any society, religious, secular, or otherwise. Only when people actively participate in civil society, something that sadly is sorely lacking in much of the Muslim world today, in which autocrats either create false civil societies or they aim to... Um, stifle it all together. The lessons that can be drawn from what is happening in both the EU and the US as a result of failed neoliberal social and economic policies, along with useful insights offered by communitarian-oriented scholars, offer valuable food for thought for offering novel conceptions of Islamic political and civil society. The rise of radical individualism in recent times has morphed into full-blown selfish egoism and the complete lack of concern for the well-being of others, perhaps best illustrated by the absurd politicization of mask wearing that emerged during the beginning of the COVID crisis in the United States, right? So, you know, we know that COVID was complicated and there was a lot of things that nobody really knew about it. But for me, it really said something when so many people, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, when people were dying in masks, were so opposed to just putting on a mask, right? Like. If you're a good citizen, if you're a good concern for your community, wouldn't it just make sense that if it seems obvious that wearing a mask could help prevent the spread of this deadly virus, you would just do it. And you wouldn't immediately say, no, no, my individual rights first. You would think of the community's rights, right? And, um, you know, in the masjid, for example, I don't remember any brothers ever complaining or not wearing the mask during Juma. Everyone wore the mask because everyone wanted to protect their brother as they're standing in prayer. I, I didn't see anybody say, oh, we should have to wear these masks when we're praying. I think most Muslims understood the communal obligation at the beginning of the pandemic or when they first started lifting restrictions that it's important to maybe sacrifice your own individual right for the well-being of the other. And on the other I guess, hand... I guess one could also say that Okay, you know, even if you're the kind of person that did that was not convinced about the extent of COVID-19's harmful effects, you should have at least done it to alleviate the fears of people that did believe it, right? Exactly. So it's like, uh, you know, so unless you had like asthma, uh, asthma or some breathing condition that uh, whereby wearing a mask would have, you know, greatly caused you some inconvenience. Just appreciate that a lot of people did believe it and were 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 scared, and so just to alleviate their fears, just do out of decency, right? Yeah, I mean, um, this is, this again, uh, but, yeah. a little bit. No, absolutely. Like you know, the vaccine—that's something totally different, in my opinion. Like I got the vaccine, I, I believe in the science behind it. My wife's a scientist, but you know, injecting something into your body—that's different. But when it comes to something as simple as wearing a mask, like you know. I just don't understand how this became so politicized from the very beginning. And okay, now, yes, now it looks like, you know, maybe we're at a different stage in the pandemic. It seems like it's ending. Not as many people are dying. I don't wear the mask anymore unless, uh, but if, once again, if I'm around somebody who's sick or somebody who really is uncomfortable, I will wear the mask because oh. it's just why make somebody uncomfortable unnecessarily? And, you know, this is a debate that we can continue to have, you know, ad nauseum. 
But the point I'm trying to make is that a society that prioritizes communal bonds is bound to produce a different moral agent and a different public conception of moral agency than one that does not. And the prioritization of communal bonds, however, does not necessitate sectarianism or exclusion either, right? Drawing from Islam's moral historical resources, a term wild halak likes to use a lot, further scholarship should aim to create models of public discourse in which the Islamic part of Islamic society remains at the forefront, which at the same time does offer reasonable accommodations for non-Muslim citizens to participate in socio-political processes and enjoy a maximum range of individual liberties and freedoms, especially in the private sphere. And this is the only way to ensure social harmony and political stability in an increasingly diversifying world. So communitarian alternatives do allow for some room of uh, pluralism. And I think Islamic civilization as well allows for some room of pluralism, right? We can look at the history of the caliphate, right? Nobody didn't force everybody to convert to Islam and follow, right? There was a lot of room for people to be different religions. Basically, as long as you didn't challenge the authority of the state, of the people in power for ruling, you were sort of left to your own devices when it came to how you lived your individual lives. And I think that, you know, there's a lot to be said about that. So finally, we get to the conclusion here. Um, uh, sorry, Joseph, uh, just in the previous slide at the end, um, sure. I think the last point, you, you, you mentioned virtue ethics. So uh, it got me thinking. So obviously, you know, there are different meta-ethical theories, yeah. uh, different, eth different eth ethical theories out there. So you got consequentialism, deontology, uh, virtue ethics, uh, subjectivism, and whatnot. In your, I mean, uh, do you... Do you have a personal opinion where 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 you think liberals may uh, may 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 fall under? Like, do, do you feel, do you, do you think that there is a connection between what ethical theory a liberal may be more inclined to follow, like consequentialism or 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 subjectivism or, or deontology, or or do do you think that there isn't any direct correlation that would somehow um, substantiate? Uh, any sort of uh, well, that's a that's a really that's a really good question. I, I I don't I can't give you a definitive answer to that. I think some people do separate their ethics from their politics. I think there's some people who are I know people who consider themselves to be devout Christians, but at the same time do identify with public liberalism in a, a very you know separates church and state so to speak, right? So there are people that are very religious. But, but I, was, but I was wondering, you know, what would the comprehensive liberals as opposed to the political okay. liberals be, be more deontologists. Yeah, I think the comprehensive liberal would ultimately err towards the side of, once again, maximizing individual liberty and autonomy and all that it entails, right? So it, it, it involves creating more autonomous personal space. It involves expanding the sphere of what is considered personal space. So I, I really don't know. I, I, I think... Yeah, yeah. It's a very difficult question to answer because I think comprehensive liberalism would ultimately fall back on the comprehensive liberal values, right? And I don't necessarily think those are in line with something like a virtue ethics type of system or a concern with, you know, improving moral virtuousness and, and ethical, you know, this kind of thing, right? So I don't know. But that's a good question to think about. And uh, these are the kind of questions I hope my book was able to raise for people. So in conclusion, finally, we get to the end here, drawing from Fred Dahlmeier, what he argued the essence of compared to liberal theorizing ought to do 
you know, the work aimed to rekindle that Ilan that I referenced at the beginning, endemic to political philosophy, by showing how relevant this discussion on Islam and liberalism still is today, with the hope to open the doors to new novel lines of inquiry that can be further developed. I try to do this by engaging with the claims of different authors and texts on their own terms, with the hope that readers would be able to judge for themselves where the congruencies between Islam and liberalism can be found, and how meaningful these congruencies are. As I mentioned before, there are many different ways to approach this project. However, the main goal is to present all material and arguments in a fair-minded and reasonable manner that would benefit readers coming from a wide range of disciplinary backgrounds and professional levels of expertise. I have to point out here that this book was also written as a partial rejoinder to the recent wave of what can only be described as uninformed nonsense coming from the many different voices representing both sides. Those interested in comparing and contrasting Islam and liberalism, sadly, often seem more interested in pushing the agenda more than anything else, rather than genuine scholarly debates. With relatively few exceptions, scholarly rigor is eschewed in favor of catchphrases and gross generalizations. On one side, there's nonsense coming from Muslims themselves, as well as proponents of Islamic models of social and political organization, who couldn't tell you what John Rawls ever said or who Judas Sklar were, but nonetheless have the utmost confidence that they know exactly what modern liberalism really is all about. Many of these voices have reduced an expansive discourse to gripes about external policy manifestations on hot-button social and economic issues that ironically are often more socialist than even liberal. On the other hand, there's an equally voluminous amount of nonsense coming from partisan Western-educated liberal voices. Many of these voices do not know anything about the basics of Islamic law or the Islamic tradition, but without hesitation, will tell you exactly who Quran 951, the controversial sword verse, who that really applies to. Right? While we're all familiar with certain figures in politics and the media doing this, sadly this happens in academic settings as well. Most of the debates related to democratic transitions in developing countries often get steeped in this kind of essentialist simplifications. Uh, these are the individuals who often reduce authoritarianism and corruption in the Muslim world to spurious claims about you know, miscontextualizes references from the Quran that are cherry-picked from translations that often themselves aren't even good. This conclusion chapter first recounts three major undercurrents that permeate this work, okay? And we're getting to the very end here. One, the differences in how Islam and liberalism thus far have understood the interaction of the otherworldly, what we can call the dini, and the worldly, or the dunyawi, right? And I, I reference Rushayn Abbasi's discussion extensively. He's a really good young scholar at Stanford right now, Highly recommend reading him. He is really articulate. Second, I talked about how alien the notion of secularism historically has been within the Islamic mindset and even the Arabic language more generally. Right? And third, the inextricability of Enlightenment liberalism from political liberalism. I then go on to articulate some of the practical real-world implications of rushing liberal reforms on illiberal societies. So what ends up happening is you have a situation where autocrats are able to basically sort of say, look, I'm making liberal changes. I'm, we're allowing women to do this. And we're allowing that. And what it ends up doing is it gets the West off their back a little bit, and it creates more space for other areas, specifically political liberties and political expression to be further repressed, right? So by paying lip service to making certain external reforms, like, look, Women can do this now, or you can drink alcohol now. You're able to basically repress other things that, in my opinion, are far more essential to a thriving civil society, right? So in, in, ends, in, in the end, liberalism can be manipulated by non-liberal actors 
to further entrench their authoritarian power. And I think we're going to see more and more of this in, in years to come across the board, right? So um, in the end, though, I, I sort of make the point that if we're going to have any type of progress on these matters, people need to, um, if we're going to actually find a way to, we have to find, further fine-tune what toleration actually means, what its limits are, and how it can be realized. This needs to be further dissected and discussed by scholars and power policymakers. In the meantime, however, and I close the book with this, we as individuals need to take it upon ourselves to further explore and engage with toleration and pluralism that are inherent with our, within our own self-subscribed comprehensive and political doctrines. In the end, moral progress is also made at the individual level. This begins by recognizing everyone's inherent moral worth. It means treating all people, so long as they're not openly trying to harm you or destroy your religion or destroy everything you believe in, with basic decency and respect. I think this is how Rawls would have had it. And based on my reading of Islamic sources, I think that this is the Islamic position as well. Trying to find the best in people, trying to give people the benefit of the doubt, and trying to constructively engage, and to never really, to never give up, right? People can all, you know, we know from the history of Islam, some of Islam's greatest early enemies became some of its closest and most important supporters. And we should take that lesson seriously. And uh, that means that certain people that we may think are our enemies now could one day become some of our closest allies. We have to leave that door open. That's the point I'm trying to make. We can't close off communication. We have to always be willing to listen and hear. And that's all I got. Thank you very much. Great. I was like, that's a great way to end it, uh, Joseph. I mean, thank you so much for that highly uh, informative presentation. I mean, it was very useful to see and understand the different liberal stances pertaining to state governance and and seeing a systematic breakdown of the different vantage points Islam and liberalism approach a, a variety of issues. Um, well done. Um, before before we let you go, I'll, I was hoping I could ask you a couple of questions. Sure, absolutely. Um, um, what's your personal assessment of how Muslims critically engage with liberalism? So wh where do you think they are on point and what areas do you think demand improvement or, or what you're referring to as, as nonsense? Um, so now I understand that, that it's a loaded question because Muslims here can encompass the scholars, thinkers, academics, mm -hmm. and, in addition to the laity and popular online apologists. Yeah. Nevertheless, I still like to get your get your take on this. Sure. I think that there's, especially mostly online apologists, there's just too much reductionism of what liberalism is. There's too much caricaturisms of what liberalism is. And I think that there needs to be more critical engagement with really what the what the deeper rooted logic of liberalism actually is. And to, to, to begin your critique with liberalism on what I con continue to harp on here is this, this expanding realm of individual liberty and autonomy and how that in many ways stands at odds with the Islamic communal conception of how we are supposed to interact as a community and as an ummah. I think that the best way to go about critiquing liberalism is not by looking at Roe versus Wade or LGBT, though that is a part of it. The best way to critique liberalism is to really look at the deeper logic that underpins it and to begin your expansion of the critique there. So this isn't to suggest that these other things that manifest themselves in liberalism are not worthy of considering, but I think too much energy and time is spent on this and this is resulting in this backlash of people 
simplistically saying, ah, yes, well, I'm going to be a, a Republican then. I'm going to be conservative since these liberals are all LGBT and are all this and that. And I think that that's also, that, that's, that's the problem here is that, you know, what we see in right-wing politics today is also, is, is um, what, what's his name? Ismail Royer articulates very clearly right-wing reactionary conservatism is just another postmodernism as well. Right? It's a it's a form of nihilism, it's a form of deception, and there is no reason to assume that by going from one camp within this larger because right wing conservatism is itself in many ways just another expression of liberalism. Yeah. Right? When you break it down, when you get past the, the left wing, right wing labels, it's still rooted in the same sort of individualist logic. And I think that, that this is something that the danger is is the way it's being presented is causing people to sort of engage in typical American sectarian politics, Republican versus Democrat. And I think as Muslims, we have to be able to transcend that. We have to recognize that both sides in the American political dichotomy do not ultimately represent our interests at a fundamental level. And that is really the key takeaway I hope people get out of this. Well said. Well said. Um, you know. Uh, well, you know. Thank you very much for for speaking to us today, Joseph. Uh, you know, I'm sure many of our listeners will find this discussion to be very educational, and that, inshallah, it would inspire and motivate Muslims to elevate the academic quality of the ongoing discourse between Muslims and liberals. Um, I'll also make sure to put a link to your work in the description box, which also includes your 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 contact details in mm -hmm. case anyone wants to reach out to you and inquire yes, about. So thanks again, Joseph. Thanks I'd just like again. to make one last point before we sure. close up here. I would like to call on all the brothers and sisters out there who are engaging in online discussion to treat each other with respect. It makes us look bad as an ummah when people who ostensibly have similar positions, right? So there are some people who are way off base, but I see brothers who are share the same madhab, share the same akita, getting in really nasty embarrassing to be honest online spats with each other over minutia and it just makes us all look bad you know treat people online the way you treat them in real life i think a lot of things people say online to each other they would never in a million years say to their brother in the masjid or if they saw them on the street so if we can try to try to I, i've tried this myself and I'll, I'll admit i myself have had my share of fights with people online as well but at least in recent times i've really tried to before I post something online, I think, would I say this in real life to this person? Maybe I would, but maybe I'd say it differently. Maybe I'd say it in a little bit more civil tone. And that, that's, that's I'd just like to close with that. Let's yeah. be good to each other. Jazakallah khairan. That was great advice. Well, yeah. Thank you very much. Well, thank you once again, Joseph. And, uh, and uh, so the listeners, we'll see you on the next blogging theology um, uh, episode. Take care. Assalamu alaikum.